Ephesians chapter 6, we'll begin reading with verse 10, and we'll read down through verse 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this sacred instruction of which we have come this morning. And Father, our eyes are open and we are looking to you, Father, that we may be instructed in the way in which we should go. So, Father, we ask that you would meet each one of us right where we are and that, Father, you would be our teacher and guide this morning opening these verses to our hearts and opening our lives to these verses. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This little book that I've made reference to several times through this series is entitled Fighting Satan by Joel Beakey. In chapter 5, a chapter entitled Satan's Strategies and Skill, Dr. Beakey writes, uh, quote, We encounter Satan's strategies and devices most when we experience God most. For Satan loathes seeing a true Christian commune with God. Isn't that a thought? You know, Luther was famous for saying, listen, everywhere where Christ builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that phrase before or that sentence before. And, you know, you think about the, the goal of preaching and teaching. The goal of preaching and teaching at the end of the day is to, is to bring a, a congregation, to bring a, a group of people closer in their communion with God. Uh, that, that's the goal. That's the end of what, of what we labor to do here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and one-on-one throughout the week and the various things that are taking place. But you know, a byproduct of that very work, uh, unfortunately, is that uh, the, the attacks of Satan actually become more intense. They become more frequent. Uh, you remember what I said last week. If, we are, uh, if we're with Christ this morning, we're AWOL from Satan. Uh, and vice versa, if we're not with Christ this morning, we're able from God. There's only two camps to choose from. We don't think of it that way. In my, uh, in my sins, uh, I never thought of myself as a servant of the devil. Someone would have suggested that to me. As I've said many times, I would have found that offensive. But it's the biblical objective 
truth, isn't it? That's the point of the early part of chapter 2 of Ephesians, isn't it? We once were sons of what? Disobedience, walking in the ways of the world, correct? Following who? The prince of the power of, of the air, the prince of darkness himself. But now that grace has found us, as grace has, as Christ in his benevolence has extracted us from the devil's camp and brought us into his camp, we can sing verses 1 through 13 in chapter 1, can't we? That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. Uh, but uh, we also need to be mindful of the fact we're now in a war, aren't we? We're now in the war because the closer we draw to the Lord, uh, the more communion we have with God, uh, the more Satan will attack us. Now, what is the answer? How do we stand to these attacks? We've been looking at that now for seven weeks. This is the seventh week. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that we stand by putting on the whole armor of God, verse 11. And that the goal is to stand, to take up the whole armor of God, uh, verse 13. And last week we began to look at just what this armor of God is, uh, verse 14. The first piece is to fasten on the belt of truth. And last week we looked at that. What exactly is the belt of truth? And uh, we saw that the imagery that Paul's doing more than simply looking at a Roman guard and looking at a Roman soldier, if you will, and drawing an object lesson from what he sees from a, a Roman guard. No, the Apostle Paul's doing more than that. He's going back into the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's developing the metaphors that were, that were given in the prophecy of Isaiah, namely Isaiah 11 and verse 5, uh, where we're told that the Messiah who is to come would come wearing the belt of truth. And I think that really is key, actually, to understanding here. Uh, we're not simply getting an object lesson where Paul's looking at the soldier he's chained to, and he's getting these ideas for these wonderful truths simply from uh, the garment that the, uh, that the Roman soldier is dressed in, although these, uh, the fact that he's chained to a Roman soldier... Uh, in his imprisonment could be spurring his memory, spurring his memory of Isaiah. But no, Paul's saying something much more than that. Paul's saying we're in a war. We're in a battle. We're communing with God. The closer we commune with God, the more Satan's going to come at us. We have to put on the armor of God. But we are given, we are provided armor from God. And it is the exact same armor in which the Messiah came. And I think that adds everything, doesn't it? You know, we're not told to go down to Kmart. You know, they got a special down there. You know, you, you, you just like, get out of here and, and go down there on sale. You know, they got these belts, you know, go get a belt and put it on. No, no, the Messiah has a belt of truth that he wore and he's making it available to each one of us so that we can stand against Satan's schemes. See how much more powerful that is? What is this belt of truth? Last week we looked at it objectively and subjectively. Objectively, it's the truth. It's the objective truth. You know, all who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's, a, that's an objective truth, whether we believe it or not. It's an objective truth. You know, there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Whether we believe that or not, that is an objective truth. I use the example of two and two being four. 
I might choose to believe that two plus two is not four, that two and two is five. But this afternoon, if someone sends me a text message, as soon as I read that text message, the fact that two and two is four is proven before my very eyes. The phone proves it. It's not that it's just two and two, that two and two is four for Marilyn here, but, you know, Alex prefers two and two to be six. Or that two and two is five for Tracy, but for Liz, you know, two and two is seven. That's silliness. I'm laboring the point because it's widely believed today that truth is, that objective truth is not possible. Well, the belt, the belt of truth is objective. How does it protect us against Satan's schemes? Well, confusion. One of the things he loves is deception and confusion. When we're confused. I found myself just this week reading uh, some systematic theology I stumbled across by accident. Actually, it's a, uh, I really was kind of digressing. And I was reading this uh, article on the Trinity and I found myself, as I was reading the article in the Trinity, really not learning anything new, but just hearing those same old truths uh, uh, given once more. And I found my, my very soul being convinced again about the fact that God is one yet three in person. Now, why do I need to continually be, why does that objective truth need to continually be brought to bear upon my soul? Because the evil one is working to bring skepticism on these great doctrines. No trinity, no salvation. No trinity, uh, no Messiah. So the objective truth helps us against confusion. It helps us against skepticism. It helps us against uh, all of these schemes of Satan. And the subjective truth, that is the truth, once it reaches the mind and then begins to work into the heart, uh, begins to change us. As it changes us, now we have the subjective truth. It's very possible and very common to believe all of the various points of the gospel, namely that Jesus came, he's the son of God incarnate, he lived a perfect life for 30 plus years, he offered that perfect life at the altar of his justice upon the cross, he satisfied God's wrath and was crucified, dead and buried, went into the grave, on the third day was raised, ascended to the right hand of the God the Father Almighty and there he is ruling in all power with unlimited authority. It's possible to believe all of that objectively and to say that is the objective truth, I believe that. And yet it makes no real change in our lives. And you'll recall that was the application I was really driving at last week. Is it has the truth changed us? You see, as the truth changes us, as the objective truth changes us, it becomes subjective in the sense that how can I go on and sin against the one who died in my place? As we begin to embrace this truth, really, Jesus, he really, the one who hates sin more than anything in the world and loves the Father more than anything in the world, would go to the cross bearing my stuff? Yes. Yes. Really, he loves me that much? Yes. Well, here comes Satan. He wants to tempt us. He wants to tempt us. He wants us to sin against the one who died in our place. 
You see the objective truth that he died in our place, you see. It becomes subjective in the sense when we say, wait a second, I can't do this. The flesh in me wants to do this, but I am going to resist it because I can't do this. I can't do this because I can't sin against one that loves me so much. So you see how that protects us against. See how the belt of truth protects us. And we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, didn't we? What is the breastplate of righteousness? Again, Paul's drawing from Isaiah 59 and verse 17. And we find it, it's, it's the very piece of armor that Jesus wore. The Messiah would wear this breastplate of righteousness. What is this breastplate of righteousness? That's his perfect life, his perfect righteousness. That's being made available to those who put their faith and confidence in Christ Jesus. You know, our, our filthy lives are taken to the cross and Christ's perfect life through Christ is given to us and credited to us. What a wonderful truth. And the perfect illustration of that is in Zechariah 3. We talked about that last week and we've talked about that in earlier messages where Zechariah sees in a vision that Joshua, the high priest, who's a holy man. And he is in this vision clothed with these filthy rags. What are the filthy rags? They're emblems. It's an emblem of his unrighteousness. And Satan is accusing him and accusing him and accusing him and accusing him. And the Lord says, get those rags off of him and put on pure vestments. And what does that do to Satan's accusations? It quenches them. And in the same way, oftentimes Satan will plague us with accusations. And the painful thing about the accusations is many of them are true, aren't they? They're true. You remember what you did. And just think about what you're thinking about doing. Think about those thoughts that are in your heart. You really, you wanna, you really think you're a Christian? Really? Could Christians think the things that you're thinking? Could Christians say the things that you're doing everything you can to keep from saying? Could Christians really behave like you do? And there's those accusations. How do we stand against those accusations? You know what? The old person is fully culpable of all of these things. But that old person went to the cross and died with Jesus. And the new person was raised with him. And I'm now clothed in Christ's righteousness. And I have found forgiveness for all of these things. You see how that quenches those darts? And now we come this morning to a third piece of armor. And uh, this one, I think, is a little trickier for us to get, perhaps. It has been for me as I have wrestled with it. In fact, um, so much so that, you know, in my own copy of the, of the Pew Bible, you know, you have that little margin there. If some of you are using the Pew Bible, there's a little blank spot. And in that little blank spot, I've actually written out the actual original sentence uh, in the Greek there. And it, it's very helpful. I'm, I'm going to take us through it here briefly this morning. Uh, but I've also written in the King James Version. Some of you have King James Versions opened up. And I think the King James translation is very helpful uh, to us. Uh, it reads, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The ESV again reads in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does that mean? What does that really mean? And how do we put that on? And how does it protect us? 
Those are really the three questions I want to deal with this morning. Okay, how do, what does it mean? What is it all about? Well, in the Greek, I'm not going to share this with you to give you a Greek lesson, but I think it's very helpful. Uh, in the Greek, the very first word we have in the Greek is the word and, and you'll notice that both translations use the word and. Uh, chi, which is translated and. And then there's this other word, which really is a, it's a participle. And what it means is to fasten on. The very next word in the, in the original is this word that means to fasten on. And typically it, it would involve fastening on shoes. Uh, and it would be translated having fastened on, if you will. Uh, so we have here the word and having fastened on. And having fastened on. Now, let's think for a minute about the, the Roman soldier for a moment. Because uh, I think this is helpful. Uh, we've seen pictures probably of the Roman soldier's shoes. Or maybe we've seen movies that were uh, that concerned ancient Rome. And we saw the soldiers marching. And you, you may recall that their, that their shoes was kind of an open-toed, kind of almost like sandal kind of construction but it fastened very tightly to the ankle and to really the lower part of the shin. Has, has anybody, everybody seen that? It's fastened on very tightly, fastened on so tightly that actually the shoes be kind of become one with the soldier. Does that make sense? So there's that idea. And having fastened on, uh, the very next word, two words in our, in our text is your feet. So literally in the original it says, having fastened on your feet. Got that? Sounds simple enough. Then the next word could be translated with uh, readiness. Uh, the ESV uses the word uh, readiness in verse 15. Uh, it literally could be translated with readiness. The King James translation used the word preparation. An old uh, faithful expositor by the name of Alexander McLaren suggested the word preparedness. I think that may be one of the best words that could be used here. Preparedness. What is that all about? Well, again, back to the ancient Roman soldier. He had shoes that were fastened very snugly to his ankles, to his shin. But they also had steel spikes that went down through the soles that formed kind of like a cleat. They were kind of like cleated shoes you know, like athletes would wear. Some people buy them to mow their grass if they have a lot of rolling hills. Uh, it helps dig into the ground. And we can see how uh, having those shoes would give you a great advantage in battle, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, but it also gave the Roman armies a great advantage in terms of their mobility. Uh, Rome won a lot of battles simply because they were so swift in their march. Uh, they overcome many enemies, actually, simply for the fact that a large battalion was able to cover so much ground in such a short period of time. And that's been the case throughout the history of, of military campaigns, so I'm told. I'm not an expert in military campaign, but I've read that from several sources, and it makes perfect sense. And uh, uh, I came across a couple war stories, so to speak, uh, in my research. One from American history is a as recent as the 50s, 1950s, when America was involved in the Korean conflict. Apparently, uh, there was a problem with the uh, boots that the soldiers wore. 
In those wet and damp climates, the feet would get wet, the shoes would get wet. And then when the temperature got cold, well, what happened? The shoes would freeze. Now, when, once the shoes froze, what happens to the feet? Soldiers were getting frostbit feet. Now, let's try to imagine a battalion out there with, uh, with numerous soldiers in it who have frostbitten feet. The enemy hasn't even done anything to them yet, and there's already a sense in which they're hardly ready for battle, are they? And even those who don't have frostbit probably are close to it. This, this battalion of soldiers is not ready for battle. They're not prepared for battle. Now, I think it starts to make sense, this word readiness, doesn't it? We're to having fastened on our feet with readiness so that we're ready, so that we can get a firm footing, so that we can expose ourselves to the things that we're going to be exposed to. Uh, does that make sense? Now, how is this readiness achieved? Well, that comes in the next phrase, and literally the next phrase really means of the gospel of peace. Of the gospel of peace would be a literal translation. So literally it would be, uh, and having fastened on one's shoes with readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, the question before us now is, how does the gospel of peace provide readiness? That's the question that we have to wrestle with now. Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You know, those of you who know, this is one of my, my pets here, isn't it? You remember, I mean, I've probably shared, I'm looking around the room, and I think I've probably shared with everyone in this room the story of trying to figure out what the gospel was early on as God was working in my heart, asking people one after another, tell me, I'm, I'm being told in the Bible that it's the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation. We're to be on about the gospel. The gospel is uh, really to be central in our lives. We're to be proclaiming the gospel. Anyone, please tell me what the gospel is. And I got a lot of different answers as I asked that question. Some of those answers were from lay people throughout the community. Uh, some of these answers were given from uh, uh, pastors who I asked myself. I can recall one person saying, young man, you've got some decisions to make. That was the answer to what is the gospel. You've got some decisions to make. A pastor told me that. You've got some decisions to make. I'm like, what? what? How do you make sense of this? There's so much confusion about the gospel. Um, in a book uh, that's been written, I recommend it to everybody. It's not a very lengthy book. It's a, it's a relatively short book. It's by Greg Gilbert. It's called What is the Gospel? I remember reading it, I don't know, a year or two ago, and I remember reading the introduction and thinking, wow, man, this brings back a lot of memories because in the introduction, he actually quotes a number of different gospel presentations that he found that were very, very popular. And uh, he went ahead and and uh, he quotes them in the introduction. And, and here the first one that he, that he quotes from is a, there's a Christian artist that they quote, a very popular Christian artist. And I think rightfully they don't name who the artist is. It's unimportant who it is. 
But he's asked the question, or she's asked the question, I don't know if it's male or female, is asked the question, what is the gospel? And they respond this way, what a great question. I guess I'd probably, well, uh, my instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, dying, and being resurrected and his inaugurating the already and the not yet of all things being restored to himself and that happening by way of himself and being made right of all things, that process both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers and yet a day coming when it will become more fully realized. But the good news, the gospel, the speaking of the good news, I would say uh, is the news of his kingdom coming, the inaugurating of his kingdom coming. That's my instinct, end of quote. Did you make any sense of that? Now, it's hard to sit and listen to quotes like this and take them in, but I don't think you're going to make a lot more sense out of it if you got in front of you and you got the afternoon to think about it. It's just, it's, it's murky. Um, I won't read all of them to you, but another one. Here's another one. This one is really popular. The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine, but are you willing to get rid of your old wine skins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Can we imagine the apostles running around ancient Palestine with this one? Do we have any examples of anything remotely close to that in the book of Acts, for instance? Um, Here's one. Here's the gospel in a phrase. Because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. Uh, What we will have to say before the bar of God's judgment, only one thing, Christ died in my place, that's the gospel. Now, we would look at this and we would say, okay, well, there's truth in it, isn't there? Thank goodness there's truth in it. It's not that there isn't necessarily phrases of truth in much of this, but is that the gospel message? Is that the gospel? Um, There's another one... uh, This one here is really, really popular. I hear this one. Actually, I hear this one. I don't read this one so much as I hear people say things that are very similar to this. The good news, that is the gospel. The gospel is that God's face will always be turned toward you, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is uh, turned in your direction looking for you. Is that the gospel? Do we have examples of the apostles preaching that as the gospel? I would even ask, is that even helpful? Because quite frankly, I don't think that's ever helped anyone. I've been told things similar to this when I've been down prior to coming to faith. I don't remember offering an ounce of help, actually. It all sounds nice, and it's it's really kind of a good for a Hallmark Channel kind of thing, but I, I, I... It sounds nice, and it's meant, and it's well-intended, but it's not the gospel. So you see, with all this confusion, there's many more of them here. And as I was reading this, I don't know, a year or two ago, I I just was overwhelmed with memories. I mean, I just smiled as I read through all this, because it was the kind of stuff that I was hearing whenever I was asking the simple question, what is the gospel? Okay, what is the gospel? You see, if we don't understand the gospel, then we are never going to make sense out of this third piece of armor, are we? We're not going to, if we don't know what the gospel is, how are we going to be able to determine how it makes us ready for battle? And how do we put it on if we don't know what it is? And if we're not wearing this piece of armor, then I guess I suppose the church could in many ways be like our American soldiers in the Korean conflict with a bunch of frostbitten feet out there. 
Does that make sense? We're not ready. We're not ready. So what is the gospel? Think about the first four chapters of Romans. And I think that's going to be our next study, actually. I think what we're going to be doing is looking at Romans next when we're done with this, uh, with this series. And think about the first four chapters. Start reading through the first four chapters of Romans. And when you do that, you'll, get to, you'll, you'll come to the theme statement in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. There he's announcing his theme statement uh, of the whole letter. And then starting with verse 18, he speaks about the fact that everyone knows that God exists because we can see that God exists by everything that's been created. So he's talking about God as creator, God as creator. And that's the first thing we want to put in our minds as we're thinking about what the gospel is. God as creator. Not just creator, uh, but a benevolent provider. Why are we living and breathing? Because God created us. Because he decreed that we would be here. Because he is currently sustaining our hearts. Nothing operates on its own. You know, the battery was dead on Donald's guitar this morning and it wouldn't work. That's why I ran home and got one of mine. No battery, no electronics. They don't just work on their own. But we act today like the universe just operates by itself. And we just operate by ourselves. And that's one of the most ridiculous notions. that can, uh, The lights don't come on by themselves. We lose the electric. We don't have any lights. No, God is benevolent creator. He is sustaining us. Now, what should be our response to this? What should be our response to a father who would create us, give us life, give us the air that we're breathing, the homes we're living in, the food that we're eating? And someone may say, wait a second, now you're flawed here. I have worked for my home, thank you very much. Yeah, you worked, with, you worked for your home, fair enough. But using abilities and skill sets to come from where? What do we have that we have not received, says the Apostle Paul? If we have an ability to do things with our hands, where did that come from? Everything that's good in our lives comes from God. Now, how, what kind of thanks as a human race have we returned to God? For all that he has done for us. Well, we've rebelled against him. And that brings us to the second point. And that's the point of Romans 1, 2, and really the first part of Romans 3, is that we are rebels. We've rebelled against him. We don't want him fooling with our lives. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want to. That's not a true statement. It is not our lives. Our lives are not our own. We had nothing to do with us. Showing up here. Did we? None of us were in on that. Our lives are not our own. We owe God all reverence. We owe God all worship. We owe God all service. He should be the very center of each one of our lives. But he's not. Because we are rebels at heart by nature, aren't we? Because we fell in the garden in Adam. And that's the second part of our gospel presentation. You see, without this part, a savior makes no sense. To run around, especially to today's culture, to run around and say, well, Jesus forgives you of your sins. It's not even on people's radar, I don't think. Sins. I need health insurance. I want a vacation. 
I want a better paying job. Sins? Doesn't make sense. Because we're skipping the first part of the gospel and we're skipping the second part of the gospel and we're moving to the third part of the gospel. Having skipped the first two parts, the third part falls flat. What's the third part? It's Christ Jesus. The fact that we need a savior. We need a savior because we're, rebe- we're rebellious. We've rebelled against the God who's created us. Does that make sense? You think these four categories, the fourth category is a response. Now, Romans 4, there's a response. The response is faith. You know, without, you know, how, how do we appropriate the salvation that's being offered to us in Christ Jesus? It's through faith. That's the gospel. Now, let's put all this together. We have the gospel. We said God who, who benevolently created us and sustains us. We have ourselves as rebels. We have Christ Jesus who's a savior. And we have faith that unites us to Christ Jesus and takes us from the camp of rebellion against God into the camp of being with God. How does this make us ready? How would this make us ready for, uh, for a battle? Putting this back into Ephesians chapter 6. Well, uh, let's go back to Ephesians 6.15 here for a moment. The Apostle Paul says, and looking at the ESV, he says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, you remember uh, Isaiah 52, which we were, uh, that we looked at here earlier? I don't think we have time to go into a whole lot about it. But uh, your insert should be in there still. If you look at verse 7, Isaiah 52, verse 7. I'd really like to develop the whole thing, but we'll do that on another time. But Ephesians 52 and verse 7, we read the words, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who what? Brings good news. A little bit of background on that. Okay, what's going on there? In ancient times, when armies went off into the battlefield, okay, we didn't have satellites. We didn't have the telegraph. We didn't have television. We didn't have telephone. We didn't have tele-anything. The armies went off, and really, if we were behind, you know, and behind the city walls, okay, our fate could very much depend on the success of the army that just left, right? Now imagine all of us wondering what's going on. Not only are we wondering what's going on, because we're wondering if our loved ones are still alive or what has become of them, but we're also wondering how are we doing I mean, is the, next, is the next thing we're going to see coming down the road, the foreign invasion? And if it is, what are they going to do to us? Or will our soldiers return? Now, what typically would be done is there were runners. There were people who would run from the battle lines back to, uh, back to the people and report on how things are going. Now, imagine yourself running this great distance back to... Uh, back to your, your, your kindred. And imagine the way you would run if you had terrible news to share. You would run, you would do your job, you'd run, but you'd be grieving as you ran, wouldn't you? And that would affect the way you ran. You would run altogether differently than you would run if you had good news to share. And the watchmen who have seen this thing before when they begin to see you coming, they would probably be able to tell whether you got good news or you got bad news simply by the way you were running. 
Now imagine what it looked like when you saw a runner approaching and he was running like he had good news. Oh, how beautiful are those feet kicking up that dust and can't wait to get and tell us the good news. And the Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans 10, doesn't he? And speaking of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, how blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel, of those who bring good news. You see, the runner has really two things going on. One, he has a message. That message has made him ready, hasn't it? He has a message that he has to communicate. So he is ready. Now, that would be the case whether he had good news or bad news. He has a message. So the message, the proclamation of the message is certainly in view. But the fact that it's good news has prepared him in a certain way to run a certain way. So the news has actually impacted him. You see, there's both an objective and subjective nature to this, isn't there? There's an objective nature in that he has a message to share. The subjective part is the message has affected him in such a way that he's kicking up dirt and he can't wait to share it. And that's the readiness of the gospel. That's what it is. That's what it means. How does it protect us? You ever notice that when you're really excited about Jesus, you're less tempted to sin against him? But it's only after your excitement for Jesus dulls a little bit that you, you become tempted. But while you're excited about Jesus, while you're focusing on Jesus, while you're looking to Jesus, like right now, you're least likely to be tempted right now, probably, although not necessarily. Satan could attack any one of us at the moment because we're communing with God in such a certain way. Oftentimes, it can't happen where we're communicating with, we're communing with God very deeply and all of a sudden this horrible thought comes into our heads. Have you ever had that experience? It can happen. How do, we, how do we protect ourselves against it? Gospel of peace. Where's the peace come in? There's a calmness of mind. Tomorrow morning, we're going to go back to the workplace. And we're going to be working very closely with people who do not have the same values as us, do not believe the same things as us, uh, do not cherish the same things as us. In many cases, um, they, they value the exact opposite. They value things that are offensive to us. And we've got to work side by side with them, don't we? Now, what's inevitably going to happen is there's going to be some irritation. We're going to irritate them because they don't like what we are on about. And they're going to irritate us because we really don't like what they're on about. And what does that do to the calmness? Ever notice that when you get irritated, the first thing that goes is that calmness inside? And we're, you know, being a good Christian, we know we better not say nothing. Well, we're not going to say nothing, but we're going to think it all day. You know, if you think it all day, you're soon going to be saying it. Maybe not to the person that did it, but to someone else. And you're going to bring that cancer to someone else's ears. But the calmness has been interrupted, hasn't it? You know, we've been inwardly disturbed. I don't talk as an expert on this. I'm talking as one who experiences this just like everyone else. But putting on the gospel of peace, one application of that really is the peace that comes in Christ Jesus. You know, when you, when you read about Jesus throughout the, 
the the gospels he's never really um, frantic is he do you never notice he's always really calm and he's always really uh, you know he knows what the next thing is he knows what he's to be doing he's doing it um, he's not spastic that inward peace is protected by the armor of the gospel he's been given a message from the father and he's on about the message he's on about the work and that's what we need to be about is being on about the message how does the message help us with those who irritate us or who would even persecute us what is the gospel God created us right he's been benevolent he's been loving towards us he's never done any one of us wrong Although sometimes we attribute to him as doing things wrong to us. Don't go down that road. It's a dead end. And it's a deadly dead end. There's a lot of things in this life we don't understand. God is benevolent. That's an objective truth. Take it, take it to be your own. But we've rebelled against him. Not a single one of us has served him the way we should have served him. But he gave us grace in Christ Jesus. We have annoyed him. But he gave us a savior. And the Savior died in our place and gave us a salvation that's free of the taking. We don't have to save up for it, do we? If we could just get enough money gathered together that one of us could have it, it'd be wonderful. No, we take it by faith. What's that do to the, what's that do to the situation? As we begin to think this way, as we begin to work this way, as we begin to train our minds and hearts this way, guess what? The peace returns. And in many cases, the peace never really leaves. Because the person that's annoying us quite possibly needs this message. But sometimes we annoy each other, don't we? Well, we need to be patient with one another. We need to bear with one another in love. Right? Because guess what? Once in a while we annoy them. Once in a while, right? But in our minds, when our peace is disturbed and we're self righteous and self-justificating. We don't annoy them ever, do we? They're always annoying us. You see, that's the devil working on our hearts, isn't it? Okay. I think that's enough for this morning. What do you think? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great piece of armor that, Father, we need to learn how to put on. We need to learn to appropriate. We need your help that we would put on the readiness that's given by the gospel of peace, O oh Father. And we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased, Father. And we know that you're pleased. You've given us this teaching for a reason. You've given us this teaching that we may learn how to appropriate. You've given us this teaching that we may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. So, Father, with full confidence, we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to give us increase in these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.